Right, so we're in Joshua chapter 5, and we are going to go through this chapter, and then um, really excited, I want to show you a very, very important concept that we see in this chapter that will help you so much in your interpreting of the Bible, and just, uh, it'll help, if, if you can get the concept of something that we see here in this chapter, this will help you to know how to answer a lot of false doctrine, and a lot of false teaching. This is a concept that I think a lot of people are just missing and they don't understand. And so I, I really want to spend some time on this tonight uh, after we get through the chapter. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when all the kings um, of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was there any spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. And I love the mental picture of this here because we saw, and I think it was chapter 2, how they already were defeated. For 40 years they had already felt defeated because they heard how God opened the Red Sea for them. And remember how this, when the spies went in and Rahab's tongues, like, man, we know that you guys serve the one true God. We know what he did for you. We know that we're dead meat. But at the same time, there was probably some time, enough time had passed for nothing had happened. They had probably got a little bit relaxed a little bit. Well, you know, they've been in that wilderness for a long time. But, you know, we don't know what all, you know, they had been thinking, what all had been said. But there is no doubt if they were already feeling defeated, you know, after what had happened 40 years ago, you can see why there was no spirit in them anymore after God opens the Red Sea for them. They're like, we're dead. You know, we're dead, it's over, there's nothing we could do. And you know what, they should have, should have surrendered, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But you know what, I, do, I, do, I believe this city was a reprobate city. And reprobates are not meant for repentance, they're meant for destruction. And uh, we might say more about that in a couple weeks. But verse 2 says, And at that time the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again, the children of Israel the second time. Now, this wasn't a second circumcision for an individual. We'll see that here in a, in a, a little bit. But what I think he's referring to here is this is the second mass circumcision that we see in the Bible because the first one was in Genesis 17 uh, when God originally gave him the circumcision. It says in verse 24, And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And in the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. And this covenant of the circumcision, this covenant that was in their flesh, this was something that God gave to Abraham that God was going to raise up this nation. This nation that God was going to raise up through Abraham was one that was going to be a completely separate and set apart nation. They were going to be peculiar of all people on the earth and their covenant was literally going to be in their flesh. And so this was something that God commanded Abraham. A lot of the promises were contingent on them doing this. And we see that in uh, Genesis 17. We're not going to go through all of that, but this was very, very important. And this was a big thing and it was a big day when Abraham did this, because remember, God chose Abraham. I think we talked about this Sunday because God knew Abraham 
God knew he was faithful. God knew he was going to command his servants. And one thing you got to understand about um, the children of Israel and about how things were back then. Now, today we're used to this concept of you are under your parents' authority until you're out of their house, right? But in reality, back in those days, you were kind of under your father's authority until you received your inheritance. And even then, there were certain things that, you know, were non-negotiable after you left. For example, the circumcision. If you were a part of Israel, it didn't matter if you were out of your father's house. It wasn't like America where you got to choose your religion. No, you were to follow the Lord God. You were to have that covenant in your flesh. You had no choice on that. Keeping the Sabbath, keeping the law. There was no choice on that. And whoever was in leadership, whoever was in charge, were to command these things and to get it done. And Abraham was somebody who did that. Everyone in his house. And there was a lot of people. It wasn't, you know, we always picture just a few people. We talked about that back when we were going through Genesis. But no, Abraham's house, there was a lot of people. They just weren't all blood descendants because he had great possession, servants, and things like that. And all of them had this done. And so, uh, as a group though, you know, now here we are 400 some years later and they have gotten away from this practice. Now this was them doing this mass circumcision here was a very clear sign that they meant business and fully intended to keep God's law. I mean, they did, they decided we're going to follow the Lord. So the first thing they do when they cross over Jordan, Joshua remembers this covenant of the circumcision that they had not been doing while they were in the wilderness. And you know what? Before Joshua was going to expect any blessings from God, he's like, you know what? We better start being obedient to God. The first thing they do, they circumcise all the men. And this was very important. This was something that they had to do. It would have been a big problem if they didn't do it. In fact, remember when God called Moses and God, uh, from, from the burning bush? Whenever you read that story, it's kind of strange the way the Bible lays it out. But as soon as God calls Moses and tells him to go deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, all of a sudden we see God was getting ready to kill Moses. And it was because of the fact that Moses hadn't circumcised his son. And then remember his wife went and took a stone. She circumcised the son, you know, instead of bloody husband art thou. That's what that story is all about. Moses hadn't even kept that law in his house and God was going to kill him for it. This was a very important thing and he ended up getting it done. But anyway, verse 3 says, and Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord swear that he would not show them the land which the Lord swear unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way, so when God had given Moses this law, you know, years before Mount Sinai, it would appear that that they didn't work very hard at following that law. It, you know, and the thing is, it was 40 years before 
you know, when God gave Moses all those laws just for the priests too and all the practices and sacrifices, and we see them doing a lot of the things because we see that they had the tabernacle with them in the wilderness. But at the same time, though, I think it seems to be apparent that there were a lot of things that they didn't do. And their excuse was probably the same excuse that they have today for all the laws they don't keep. Okay? Does anybody know what the classic excuse is for a Jew today if you ask them, why aren't you keeping the law? Why aren't you doing the sacrifices? No temple. We don't have the, we don't have the land. We don't have the temple. Therefore, we don't have to do these things. And let me tell you, that is why a vast majority of the Jews don't even want the land. They don't even want the temple built. Most Jews do not want the temple built. You know why? Because according to their own religion, if they're right and Jesus wasn't the Messiah who fulfilled all those things, they have to take annual pilgrimages to Israel. They got to go do the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem every year. They don't want to do that. They got to go. I, I think there's even other things they got to do because th- technically, technically, according to the law, if they get that temple built out there, technically they should all move back to Israel. Yeah, don't get too excited about that. Now, I don't want to see you all going and donating your tithes now to the Temple Mount Institute to help them get that done. You know, just so, <laughs> but I, I saw your face when I said that there. But uh, you know, but the truth is, you know, it's just it's a lame excuse. They and they they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. It's just the Zionist Jews that want to get it done, and the Zionist Christians want it to happen because they think that will hurry up the rapture and get them out of here. They don't even realize they're supporting their own persecution is what they're doing. Another subject for another day. But it would appear they, they were doing the same thing back then. Well, we don't have the land. We're in the wilderness. We've got all these things going on. We can't worry about circumcision right now. But folks, that was a very, very important thing. That was very important for them to be doing this. And they weren't doing it. So it made, But this was a good thing. Joshua made the right call here when he's like, all right, we're in the land. Before we go find any battles, before we go possessing anything, before we expect God to do anything for us, how about we do what we were told to do in the beginning? You know what? Every man gets circumcised. This was a good call that Joshua did. And so it says and there, um, in verse 8, And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day... Have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you? Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And you know what? There's no doubt that this right here, the, the circumcision, it is. It's a picture of what God does on the heart. Okay? And we don't need the circumcision of the flesh today. We have the circumcision of the heart. And the truth is, God wanted them to have the circumcision of the heart back in that day too. And they didn't have it. There was a lot of Jews that had the circumcision in the flesh, but they didn't have it in the heart. And so God wasn't impressed with them for that. The circumcision was actually one thing that after this time, they actually did pretty good on. But they had a wicked heart, so God didn't care. And just like there's a lot of Christians, they've got certain commands down. Like they go to church when they're supposed to go to church, but they got a wicked heart. Congratulations. I'm glad you go to church. Congratulations, ladies. I'm glad you dress right. But if you're a gossip and a busybody, you know what? God's not impressed. If you've got a wicked heart, God's not impressed. We're real good at getting those outward things down, but often we forget the inward. But we need to understand those outward things are supposed to be a picture of what's on the inside. 
And let me tell you, if some lady's dressed the way they were on the inside, tell you what, they look like the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, or something, you know, it, it, it'd be bad. That's how that's how evil their hearts are. And that's and and God sees that. God does not want that. I'm all for ladies dressing nice, but let's keep our hearts good too. And but this circumcision, there is no doubt, it's a picture of salvation because notice how God said, "I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you." This was something that made them look bad. That time, that 400 years of captivity, it made them look bad as a nation. It made them look weak as a nation. Their time wandering in the wilderness, all these things, it made them look bad. But now that they've received this circumcision in the flesh, God says, I've rolled away that reproach from you. And when we get saved and we receive the circumcision in the heart, you know what it does? It rolls away the reproach of sin from us. We do not have to be ashamed of that sin anymore. We don't have to be afraid to bring our petitions to God and to go to the Lord in prayer. We don't have to be ashamed to come into the house of the Lord because we understand that that's, that reproach of sin, it has been wiped away. And if you have bad stuff in the past that's embarrassing, you know what? You can, you can get past that. And understand, if you do still have shame and you know, you're bothered by these things, just remember that's the devil messing with you. That's the devil well, it's other Christians. Well, it's the devil using other Christians. They might do that sometimes too. You know what? Ignore that. That stuff's under the blood. And that's something we should all be excited and thankful for. And so verse 10 says, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And I believe this is significant too because here they are. They're on the doorstep of their enemies. And it kind of, it, I mean, it would make sense that if you've just gone into the land, you've just crossed the Jordan River, you're coming up on Jericho, you know, there's, it makes strategic sense that you don't want to waste any time. You better go take that city quick. Don't give them time to get ready. Because you know their guard's going to be up after everything that's happened. But you know what? The Sabbath was also something they were supposed to be obeying. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was one of those Ten Commandments. And violating the Sabbath was also a big deal that was emphasized greatly in the law of Moses. And so there they are. They're there in that land on that first Sabbath day. And you know what they did? They didn't do what made strategic sense militarily speaking. You know what they did? They obeyed God, which is the best military strategy that there is. But, that also, but it requires faith. And they did that. They were, they were more interested in obeying God than they were in just being vigilant and uh, ready as warriors. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in obeying God. And a lot of this was because of Joshua. Joshua was somebody who uh, did, he loved the Lord. He was obedient. And God had exalted Joshua and the people, they trusted him and they followed him and God used him greatly. And then notice this here in verse 11. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes, in parched corn in the selfsame day. <clears throat> and watch this. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, no more manna. Now, why did the manna cease? Okay, And we're going to get back to that because this was a major moment right here if we can if we can understand why the man has ceased and the significance of that 
it's going to help us understand a lot of things that people get confused on in the Bible. It's, it's very important that we understand, first off, why the manna and why it went away. And we'll get back to that. But let's go ahead and read these last few verses here. It says, And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the, of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, who do we think Joshua was standing before at that moment? This is the Lord, isn't it? This is Jesus. First off, uh, we know it was the Lord that was about to fight the battle, wasn't it? We know, we all know what happens at Jericho. Who fought that battle that day? God fought the battle that day. And I love this too because he's standing there with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua asked him, you know, are you for us or are you against us? And you know, he didn't say, I'm for you. You know what he did? Because at the end of the day, you know, when it's God, you know, it's not about him being for you. It's just, are you on his side? You know, he didn't say, he didn't say, no, I'm on your side to help you. No, I'm the one in command. I'm the captain of the host. The real question is, are you with me? Because I'm fixing to go fight and I'm fixing to win. And so the question is, are you following me? And, you know, that's the way it, it always is, folks. You know, we, we don't need to worry or, you know, we shouldn't ask the question, is God on our side? We should ask the question, are we on God's side? Because it's, it's his, it's what he wants. It's his agenda. And it, there's no doubt that he's got that sword drawn because he was ready to fight. That's what you do when you have a sword out. You're ready to fight. And so here they were. They were in, they come into the land. God had already opened up the Red Sea for them. And the first thing they do, they get over there. Joshua has everybody circumcised. God's pleased with that. God, all, Joshua has everybody keep the Sabbath day. God's pleased with that. Here, Israel is showing they mean business. They are ready to serve the Lord. They are ready to be obedient. They are ready to claim all these promises that God had given them as a nation. This generation decided we are going to follow the Lord. And then God's like, you know what? All right, I'm ready to show myself strong. I got my sword out. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. So there's no doubt this is, I believe, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ or a Christophany as, as they are known as. And because one, we know it was, it was him that fought the battle. We see also that he accepted Joshua's worship here too. And Jesus rightfully can and always did accept worship. It's an appropriate thing to worship Jesus Christ because he is God. We see that the ground was holy where he stood, just like it was at the burning bush. Saint God, God told him the same thing that he told Moses at the burning bush, take your shoes off, you are on holy ground. And you know what else? It was Jesus we see in the book of Acts that was with the church in the wilderness. And you know what? It was Jesus that was with the church in the promised land too. And just as God was with them in the wilderness, he is there with them in the promised land. And so next week we'll see uh, more of what went on between Joshua and the Lord. But what I want to focus on though 
is this the manna ceasing? Because this is this was a very significant thing. All right. So the first thing we need to say, because if, if we get this, if we understand this concept that we see here, if we understand something that God is showing us here, this is going to help us answer a lot of questions that get thrown our way theologically. Okay. And so uh, pay very close attention to this. So the first thing is, you know, why did God give a man in the first place? Okay. So first off, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Okay. Because, you know, there was a lot of ways that God could have fed them. In fact, we do see one example where God fed him with quails. I mean, why couldn't he, you know, do something like that? You know, why couldn't, you know, there's so many different ways God could have done it. But no, they were in a wilderness. God furnished a table in the wilderness, didn't he? He gave them bread from heaven. But this is important that we understand this. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, it says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now that verse is familiar, isn't it? That's what Jesus quoted to Satan when he was trying, Satan was trying to tempt him into turning the stone into bread. And so notice that the reason God fed them manna, it was to humble them, to teach them about their dependence on him. That you know what? God wanted this special nation to know that, hey, life is not just about food. Life is not just about the physical. That's what most nations worry about. Okay, Most nations... They're just worried about staying alive, surviving, you know, you know, being able to get through the famines and droughts. And especially back then when things were a lot more difficult, you know, they're worried about other armies coming and invading them. Those are the kind of things that they worried about. And, and so God wanted to teach this nation that, you know what, there's more to life than just food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. You all, he wanted them to realize that how important it was to follow his commands and to follow the teachings of the word of God. And so God had to humble them. If it had been too easy for them, or if they would have just been able to survive because of their great hunting skills or the abilities to just grow things or find food where other nations wouldn't be able to do it, then they would get lifted up with pride and they would think, you know, we've done this ourselves. But God wanted them to know the only reason you people are still alive is because I kept you alive. The only reason you didn't die of starvation in the wilderness is because I fed you. I gave you bread. I'm the one that made you survive. We see in verse 16 of chapter 8, he says, Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And you know, before we can get saved, what do we have to do? We have to accept that bread of life, Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's a humbling thing. None of us can brag about what we did to get to heaven, can we? The way, the, the true plan of salvation, the only way of salvation is one that requires humility, except you humble yourself and become as little children. What a person has to do to get saved is they have to recognize their dependence on God. And what are we depending on to get saved? The Word of God. This is what the Bible says, isn't it? This is what we take with us 
when we go out soul winning, we take our Bibles out, we show them what the Word of God says, and if they will believe this, if they will accept this simple message based on the words of God, they will be saved. There's nothing to brag about there, is there? It, it is. It, it's, a, it's a humbling thing. And so, uh, God wanted to humble them in the wilderness. And so, as a nation, okay, God did. God humbled them. From here on out, when Israel is talking about their history, it's going to involve that 40 years in the wilderness that the only reason they survived it was because God fed them. God took care of them. He got all the credit for it. He didn't want to be like Americans who, you know, we brag about, you know, in our history, we brag about our military. You know, we brag about the Revolutionary War people and the Founding Fathers and all these great people. And listen, you know, man is capable of, raise, you know, making a great nation and great military, right? And But, you know, do we really get to brag about that? Because Nebuchadnezzar built a pretty strong army too, didn't he? And a pretty strong kingdom. But you know what? It fell, didn't it? It eventually went away. Alexander the Great, he accomplished some things, didn't he? Rome accomplished some things. You know, there's a lot of people in the past that have accomplished some great things. They've built some strong armies and great nations, but you know what? They always fall. They never last. And the, the, what God, wa God wanted to make sure that this nation was one that everyone knew was there because of God and what he had done. So, uh, so another thing we see here is, so now that they're in the land, this is another reason I believe the man has ceased, God wants them to be able to function just like any other nation should be able to function. They were supposed to be an example to other nations. And so there are some things that we should be able to do ourselves. Because it's like, why not just keep feeding the manna? I mean, it worked for that generation. Why not just, why didn't God just do that forever? And it's because God was trying to raise up a physical nation, wasn't he? They needed to learn how to work. They needed to learn how to farm and to do all those things. God gave them a land. God gave them everything they needed. But you know what God did? God expected them to get to a point where they could feed themselves. And so now that they were in the land, and once they did, once they ate that food of the land, you know what God did? God said, all right, I got you in here. You guys need to start feeding yourselves now. And you know what? That was a good thing. That was a, that was a good thing. You know what? Every young person in here especially you met young men that are in here, you ought to look forward to the day and you should be proud of the day someday when you're able to walk out of your parents' house and they don't have to feed you anymore and you're able to take care of yourself. You know, but you know what? We've got a generation today. They want to keep getting fed by mommy and daddy forever and they're not ashamed of it. You know, they should be humbled by that. You know, when you're 30, 40 years old and mommy and daddy still got to take care of you and they still got to feed you, you should be humbled. At that point, but you know what? Our our country's so bad we don't a lot of guys don't even blush at that stuff. They act like they're entitled to these things. But you know it's a good thing when you learn how to do some things on your own. It is it is fulfilling, it is better, and you know what? God wanted them to have that privilege, God wanted them to have that ability to go and work and to accomplish something. And because it is, it's a fulfilling thing. And so they're to that point now. This is a great moment. This is a big step forward. This is something they should all be excited about that God doesn't have to feed us anymore. We can feed ourselves. Now, obviously, they still needed the blessing of God, just like everybody does. But this was, this was a good, this was a good thing. And there are, there are some things we should be able to do 
ourselves. And so, and, and we are 100% dependent on Christ for our salvation. But you know what? That doesn't mean God doesn't expect us to grow as Christians and actually start living like a decent human being. God expects us to grow up and to learn to do some things and, you know, and not be, blame God every time we do some sin. Oh, Lord, you just didn't help me enough. You know what? You ought to be able to control yourself at this point. So, another thing we're seeing here is a clear picture of something that God was going to do again with His church. Okay? Now, turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is where we kind of can, can kind of get into uh, helping us understand a lot of things that we see in the Bible where it's real easy for false prophets or even just people that are just ignorant of the Scriptures to come along and teach some really foolish things. Okay, now, in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Now, what I personally believe when he's talking about that which is perfect has come, I think he's referring to when we receive that glorified body and when we see Christ and when we're like Him. When we are complete, you know, then we're going to know, we'll know it all then. But right now, we only know in part, don't we? Okay, everything we have, we know, we just know in part. Okay, but one of these days, we'll have the full package. Now, throughout time, and throughout, for, and for what a lot of the old IV would say, throughout the so-called dispensations, okay? And dispensation is actually a good word to use to explain this. It's just, I'm not talking about dispensationalism though. Because a dispensation, it's like a dispensing, right? It's giving out of something. Throughout time, God has given us more and more of His Word, hasn't He? God has revealed more and more about Himself. God has revealed more and more about His plan for the ages. God, throughout time, revealed more and more about the Gospel and about salvation. God has, given, God has dispensed more and more throughout the ages. Okay, So, here's the thing about that. Whenever God dispenses something new and gives us, gives us more, then that means there are, there's going to be some things from the past that we don't need anymore. Does that not make sense? There's some, there are some things that change throughout time. Now, don't get nervous about that. Sometimes, you know, we're so anti-dispensational, we act like nothing has changed throughout time. Okay? But no, some things have changed. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. The dispensationals are right when they say that. Okay? We actually agree with them on that. There are things that, ha there are things that have changed. Okay? And I believe... Paul is showing us here that what we have and what we know, it's not all there, but one day there are going to be some things that will cease. Okay? And so, tongues is one of the things that are mentioned as something that was temporary. Okay? And I, I believe it was one of those things, and I personally believe that tongues have ceased. I, I believe 
that's done. But here's what we do. We have this bad habit of reading a passage of Scripture and applying it to the present when we shouldn't. And we get, and the thing is, we get most of it right from the Old Testament, like when it comes to a lot of Old Testament things. But often because something's written in the New Testament, we still think it applies to our present situation. Okay? We cannot do that. Okay? Because think about it this way. What if, at, let, me, you know, this, let me illustrate it this way. What if after the manna ceased? Okay? We're in Joshua chapter 5. The manna has ceased. What if someone would have decided not to work the land and plant anything because God's going to feed his manna? And they're like, no, actually, you need to better start working the fields. You better start getting some food ready. But then what if he went and he quoted Exodus 16 and 16, verse 16 that says, this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded, gather of it, talking about manna, every man according to his eating, and omer for every man according to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tents. So right there we have a command for the Bible telling us to gather the manna, Right? What if somebody would have done that in Joshua's day? Hey, I'm just following Exodus 16, verse 16. I mean, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? Isn't that what the Bible says? Why are you disobeying God and not go, and going out and getting that manna? You know why? Because God's done with that. God has finished that. God, that, that has ceased. The manna has ceased. It stopped. God's done using that. That is not necessary anymore. We don't need manna. We're not in the wilderness anymore. We're in the promised land. God has given us the land. Why? There's no need for it. We just don't need it. And so people often do the same kind of thing where they'll go to a passage in the Bible and they don't take into account the fact that that is done. That that has, that has ceased. Okay? And um, look what it says in... Well, uh, turn, over, turn over to Amos chapter 3. We'll get there in a second. So, if a man would have come and done that with Exodus 16, 16, you know what he is? He's just a fool who's misusing the Scriptures. This is what he's doing. People often do the same thing with verses on circumcision. I've heard people that have tried to act like we're still supposed to circumcise people because, you know, God commanded to Abraham or Abraham's seed. And you know what else God commanded? God commanded that Abraham and, and his seed, that they were supposed to do that forever. Okay? God did say Forever. But you know what else God said to do forever? Keep the Passover forever. God also said to have a Levitical priest forever. God also said to uh, you know, do the sacrifices forever. So what happened? Uh, it's something called replacement theology. It's called they couldn't get it done. They couldn't do it. And so Jesus came and he replaced all those things. And so those things are finished. Those things are done. We don't have to do that anymore. So if somebody wants to come to you and they want to quote your Old Testament scriptures about circumcision, laugh at them because they are wrong. You do not have, you do, not have to do those things. And so people are constantly doing that. They're going to the scripture and they will. They'll take a phrase and they apply it to the present when it does not apply to the present. No, this was for a specific situation. Okay? And, and the thing is, common sense can help us with this. It just makes common sense why the man has ceased. Okay? You don't have to go and get a degree in theology to figure out why the man has ceased. They were in the promised land. They didn't need it anymore. They should be able to feed themselves. And you know what? It doesn't take a theology degree to figure out why some of the things we even see in the book of Acts are not needed today. We'll say more about that in a little bit. But let me show you another example. Okay? And, and I hear this one misused 
a lot. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? And shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? Now, people will use this. So every time anything bad happens anywhere, God did it. Anytime a dry climate happens to have forest fires again, God did it. Anytime Florida gets a hurricane, God's punishing Florida. Anytime, you know, Louis, you know, Pat, you know, Louisiana and New Orleans, that's a city they built under sea level, gets flooded, God did it. Well, are you sure it's not that we live on a planet that always has hurricanes, tornadoes, storms? I mean, you know, is, is God punishing us here every winter when it gets super cold? Every time we get a blizzard? It's an evil in the city, let me tell you. I mean, or is it, is it called winter? <laughs> you know, is it called just hurricane season? You know, earthquakes. All these things. And, I, and listen, I, I get it. Sometimes God does those things. But at the end of the day, we don't really know for sure, do we? Because, you know, the very next verse too says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing. Well, God didn't do it. Because it says, sure, here, He'll do nothing. Well, I really believe the Lord's going to do something in our church. The Bible says, well, surely the Lord God will do nothing. What makes you think God's doing it? That's us. The Bible says God will do nothing. <laughs> I mean, you see how we can always find a phrase to go along with our agenda on literally anything we want? It says, but, but then notice it says, but he revealed the secret unto his servants, the prophets. So, well, what was he talking about here, neighbors? Well, here's the thing. In Israel, during that time, a lot of things was going on because God's trying to get the attention of Israel because they weren't right with God. Judgment was coming their way. God was wanting them to repent. So when God reveals to the prophet and God tells the prophet, go speak to these people, and they're all thinking, oh, no, we're not having any problem. God's not trying to get a hold of us. All these things that are happening, you know, they aren't of God. No, actually, those things were of God. And you know what? God revealed it to the prophet. And so he's kind of given these, you know, proverbs and things to explain it. But just because that was the case then in a specific time when God was doing, bringing some specific judgment on a specific people, does that mean that's just the case for every situation everywhere? Are we going to be like Pat Robertson now and just going and just like we know exactly when God is moving in these things and exactly why he's punishing people? Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, too, you know what we always do? Whenever we start declaring that something was God's judgment, and especially when we declare why God brought the judgment, we're just telling everybody, well, this is what I would have done if I was God. But, you know, the truth is, we don't really know those things. You know, and I can tell you what, God's never consistent with my judgment. Because it's like, I mean, there's a lot of cities, you know, New Orleans, that'd be pretty high on a you know, list of cities to judge, but there's a bunch I'd rather them take out first. I'm thinking D.C., you know, I'm thinking New York, you know, I'm thinking Hollywood, you know, places like, you know, these, but, you know, again, God, that's not how God does things. And even if he did, there is a verse in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 43, where it says, yeah, further has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them that which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Why do we need to do these things? Why is Jesus telling them to do these things? Well, he tells them that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. Oh, okay. So this proves this is how you become the children of God by loving your enemies. Is that what he means right there? Does this prove work salvation? No. When he's saying that you may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, let's keep reading. 
Don't just stop reading. It says, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So you know what he's showing right here? Hey, the way God is going to reveal who his disciples are is they're going to be revealed through their works. They're going to be revealed through their love, loving their enemies, doing good to those who do evil to them. That's how the children of God are going to be revealed because God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like God doesn't prove who's righteous and who's not righteous based on weather. So, I mean, folks, you, you can't just go to a passage like that in Amos and do something like that. That's just weird. That's, that's dishonest with the Scriptures. You, you can't do that. And so when it's saying that you may be the children, it's like if, you see, if I see my kids doing something that I wouldn't do, you know, it's like, they're not my kids, they're Cassandra's kids. You know, <laughs> you know, you know when you see them eating cheese, that's not because, you know, that, that's not from me. That's from their mother. Okay? When you see them being picky about those things, you know, that's from me. And when you see somebody loving their enemies, hey, they didn't get that from their earthly father. They got that from their heavenly father. Because we don't naturally love our enemies. We don't naturally bless them that curse us. And so that's how God reveals who his true disciples are. Those who are doing good, those who are acting like their father. Because circumstances, weather patterns, all those things, they don't prove anything. That's not how God works. So don't do that kind of thing. Now turn to Mark chapter 16. One final example. Because again, he, he, what people are doing, especially the charismaniacs, they'll go to the, they'll, you know, they've got a lot, so most people got the Old Testament stuff figured out, but they'll even go to the New Testament and then they will claim things that, folks, we don't need today. Okay? In Acts 16, 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In thy name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up servant, serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. All right, looks like we got to go to the you know mountain church you know down in Kentucky, and uh, go to the snake handling church, and figure out what we're missing, because uh, we haven't been doing any of this stuff here. But you know some people do it. They'll try drinking the poison and everything, and you know they never have enough faith and die, and 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 we laugh at those stories, you know. And but here's the thing. In the early church, before they had the scriptures, you know what? They needed these things. They needed these miracles. Just like the nation of Israel needed major miracles while they needed the manna for 40 years. You know what I believe? I believe for 40 years, the church needed the same kind of thing. I believe for 40 years, they did. They needed the tongues. They needed the healings. We see the Apostle Paul. He got bit by a serpent, didn't he? And it wasn't because he was tempting it and holding it in a church service. It's because he was building a fire and there happened to be one there and it bit him. And, and God used that to you know, reveal to those barbarians that he was of God. And they got saved. But folks, here we are, 2,000 years later, we have the completed scriptures Churches have been around for the last 2,000 years. Why do we need miracles? Do I really have to get up here and heal somebody to get you to believe what this book says? 
You know what? We ought to be past that right now. We should be we should be past that. And folks, I don't believe we need the tongues anymore. Think about this. I believe I believe it was it was forty years. Okay, the apostles, they're all dead. We have their writings. The scriptures were completed in seventy A.D. Jerusalem was completely destroyed, fulfilling many prophecies. Now, I can see in those first 40 years why there might have been some conflict. In fact, you know, there was, there was a major conflict in Israel and amongst the Jews, uh, you know, over Jesus being the Messiah to the point where, you know, Christians were almost like another sect of Judaism until the persecution got so bad, they ended up just kind of spreading out. But you know what? It's very clear in the Bible and in the book of Acts that the hearts of the Jews were always just still kind of in Jerusalem. They focused on that place just a little too much. And it was like God had to make it clear, I am done with this place. This place has nothing to do with what you need to do. You need to get out there in the world. I've got a new nation now. I've got a spiritual nation that you know is going to be all over the world. I'm not dwelling in a temple made with hands anymore. I'm dwelling in the hearts of people. And God allowed that temple to be destroyed. Folks, after 70 AD, there should be no doubt anymore who is right. Judaism's gone now. It's gone it was, it was gone in 70 A.D. Oh, no, we still see Jews in history after that. No, we don't. We see the synagogue of Satan formed. We see the falling away. That's what we see. We see an apostasy where the people of God rejected the Messiah and they went into this antichrist religion that denied that Jesus was a Christ. And there's still a remnant of that today. And that's another sermon for, for another time. But the, the church had been established. Okay? The church had been established. There was no need for those things anymore. And so just like Israel needed that extra help for 40 years after coming out of the wilderness, I believe the church needed some help for 40 years. Most of the scriptures were all completed by 70 AD, probably with the exception of the book of Revelation. Maybe, maybe 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Some people date that pretty late too. But uh, most of the scriptures were all completed by 70 A.D. The church was very well established. In fact, the, the entire world had heard the gospel. We see that mentioned in Romans and I believe in the book of Colossians. The gospel had gone to the whole world at that point. So, folks, we don't need these things anymore. And you know what we've got today? We've got a lot of Christians. It's like they're wanting to go back to the manna. That would be like Israel. So, you know, I liked it better when we were eating the man in the wilderness. You know what? I'd rather, you know, eat the food that I raised myself so I can have more of a variety. I'd like to have some steak every now and then. I'd like to eat some vegetables and some fruit and things. Just eating man every day will get pretty old. I think they had it better. And you know what? I think we have it better today. I'm glad we don't need these things. I'm glad we have this right here. You know what? This is better than a guy getting up and speaking in an unknown tongue. I mean, that'd be kind of cool to see that. But you know what? That's just one experience you're going to get and then it's over. They didn't even have any video cameras back then or YouTube they could put it on so they could relive it. It would happen and it was over. Now, we have this. That's better. And we should be content with that and not try going back to those old things. And you know what? This same principle too, I think even applies just in Christianity still today. We've always got somebody... In Christianity, that's always wanting to like just go back 
to something from the past. It's like, you know, we don't, it's like we got all, it's, you know, I make fun of them all the time, these old IFB guys, they're you know, thinking the key to revival and the key to just really jump-starting their ministry and getting it going is a radio ministry. It's like, hey, we got something better than that today. It's called the Internet. Use the Internet. You know, you, you, use these things. They're good. They're a blessing. Uh, no, I, I want to go to the old ways. No, that's, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, there are things that are better. There are things that we don't need anymore. You know, you could... Some places still using newspapers. Nobody reads them anymore. You know what? Get a stinking blog. Get a website. Do something like that. It's more efficient. It's better. And and you know, and people, it's like they think that the key is that old school technology. Thanks, folks. There are some things that need to change. You know, there was a time when preachers and evangelists. I, and I, there's been people before in the past that um, I specifically asked them, hey, come to, I want you to come to my church and I want you to preach this message. Because, you know, there was a time, if you did, if you had a really good message, if people were going to hear it, you know, they had to travel around from place to place. Now we have the internet. We don't need that anymore. These preachers that are going around preaching the same message oh, every single week, folks, we don't need that anymore. You know what? It's time to move on. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But yet these guys are like calling for this old way that is is irrelevant. We have something better. It's time to it's time to move on. And you know what? We as Christians, we're always going to need Christ, no matter what. But you know what? We should be capable of doing what God has commanded us to do without any supernatural occurrences. You know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing some miracles, but. I don't need to. I don't need to see a miracle to believe this Bible. It, so um, there's no reason for God to do that. I don't think there's any reason. There's. No, I can't think of a single reason in the world why anybody in here would need to speak in tongues tonight. No, we don't need. We don't need that. But they did back then. They did back then. And to want to go back to that, I think is just foolish. It would be like Israel wanting to go back to the manna. They should. You know. And I think they were thankful for the new situation they were in. And that's how we ought to be. We should be thankful that we don't need those things anymore. And we should be thankful for what God has distributed us, what God has given to us. And let's just use it until we get the next dispensation, distribution, dispensing, whatever you want to call it, when Jesus Christ returns. That is revelation. Until then, I'm going to be content with this. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that this message was a help. And Lord, I pray to help us to take advantage of what you've given us. I, I pray you help us to be thankful for what you've given us. Lord, help us not to go back like so many churches trying to recreate things from the book of Acts, Lord. Uh, Lord, you have given us so much. You've already done those things for us. Uh, help us just to uh, believe your word like we're supposed to. And I, Lord, I'm thankful that we don't have to have those things. I'm thankful for uh, all that's already been accomplished uh, in your church. And I just pray you help us to just continue... Uh, continue doing the same thing and just teaching the truth to others. In your name we pray. Amen.